Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Pastor Bailey's been preaching from the book of 1 Corinthians the last few weeks, and the theme of that preaching has been unity among the body of Christ, unity between God's people. Pastor Bailey is up in Michigan working on a writing project this week, and in his absence, the pastors have asked me to address a topic, not from 1 Corinthians, but one that's very much related to the theme of unity, a topic of concern to us as your pastors, concern for this church. That concern kind of goes up, and sometimes it goes down. I won't tell you if we're in the high point or the low point just now. But it's the topic of food. We're going to consider the topic of food today. We're inundated in our culture with all kinds of opinions, philosophies, beliefs, viewpoints about food. What we should eat, what we should not eat, what we're to make of food. A man over here finds himself a new diet that he thinks works for him, makes him feel better, makes him lose weight, and suddenly he's never witnessed anybody. But he becomes a regular uh, William Carey, fresh off the boat, ready to convert the heathen. Um, A mom over here, through many hours of painstaking, careful research online, discovers that her child's behavioral problems are really due to red 40 dye. And so she, she goes on a crusade, starts a mommy blog to bring down big food. This is everywhere. This is, this is happening all the time. It's real stuff. And those are the, those are the tame examples <laughs> of the ways we approach food, the way we think about it. There's so many voices preaching to us today about food. They're coming from so many contradictory angles. It's hard to sort through. What are we to make of all the stuff out there, all the teaching, all the information about diet, about food? Where do we turn? What is our test? How do we think about it like Christians? God in his word has provided for us everything pertaining to life and godliness. All our questions are answered in God's word if we'll read it, if we'll read it carefully, if we'll study to find what he would say. And that's what we come here, especially on this day of days, to do, to sit under his word and have him teach us and to give us what we need for life. And it's so, since food is so integrally related to life, it's not surprising to see that God's word talks a lot about food. It's quite a big deal to the writers of Scripture. There's a lot that God has given us to understand about it. Our text this morning, which we're going to get to, is 1 Timothy chapter 4. But we're going to delay that for a moment. First, we want to lay some ground, um, groundwork, some foundational things that God's Word reveals about food. Just basic answers to basic questions as a way of setting up what Paul writes 
in Timothy. First of all, where does food come from? It comes from God. It was created by God. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't something that is an unfortunate consequence of the fall that, oh, now man has to eat because he's, you know, he's dying. We have to help him hang on for a while. No, it was before the fall in the garden that God gave Adam food. It's part of that creation which God called very good. And it wasn't an afterthought even at that. It was prepared for him. So God knew where he was going. It was his good pleasure to cause you and me to be dependent on daily bread. God made food. Why did God make food? There's a lot of ways you could answer that question. I think there's two basic reasons that they all boil down to. And one is that the most important one is God has made us dependent on food as an aid to communion with him. Very practical way for us to live out dependently upon the Lord, a symbol of our spiritual dependence on God. In him we live and move and have our being. That's the truth of what God made us for. We're to be united with him, to live dependent upon him, to delight ourselves in him. And food is like this every day, several times a day, example, demonstration, visible thing, physical thing that he's given us, written in to the system that forces us to consider, if we have a will to consider it, that we depend on him for everything. Food aids us in communion relationship with God. Food also, secondly, aids us in relationship and communion with one another. So powerful force for creating community, love, joy, mutual delight. Food is just this amazing thing. When I was growing up uh, as a, back in Missouri on the farm, my grandparents lived up the road, their four sons had adjoining farms, all the cousins, and we all headed up to grandma's every Saturday for lunch about noon, and we ate together. Grandma would, in the space of just like two hours, some, usually starting about 10 o'clock, had four pies, four kinds of meat, four salads, four sides. It was just an unbelievable force of nature, my grandma. But this established the Killingsworth family as the Killingsworth family. A very amazing, beautiful thing. Food is what establishes unity, and it's the context that God has given us, the means, the, maybe the principal means for sharing our lives, loving one another through food. So it's a great blessing, tremendous blessing. And because it's so great, it can be so seriously abused, misused. What does God permit us to eat? Now we're getting down to brass tacks, starting to get a little edgy. What does God permit us to eat? Well, in Genesis 1, 29, it says that God originally gave man every green plant to eat. I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed in it shall be food for you. And he also gives the same to the beasts. 
So originally, in the garden, God gave, first of all, vegetables and all of the fruit of vegetables to man to eat. And then, after the flood, God adds to the diet meat. He becomes more liberal, more permissive, more generous in what he allows man to partake of and be nourished by and to enjoy. Thank God for that, hey? Meat. So it says in Genesis 9-3, God says to Noah, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. So first of all, he gave every green plant and its fruit, and then additionally, every moving thing that is alive. Nothing is accepted. That covers pretty much everything edible. So what has God, how has God provided for our needs? Adequately? Suitably? Abundantly supplied for your need. What about clean and an unclean animals? If you're a student of scripture, that would be the, the next question on your mind. Okay, so I see that he's there's this complete permissiveness, but what do we make of almost immediately we're, we're into the territory of these distinct, this distinction in scripture, even in Genesis, early chapters of Genesis, clean and unclean. What do we make of that distinction? Well, Already at the time of Noah, prior to the flood, there was this understanding of clean and unclean. In Genesis 7, 1 to 3, God says, in giving instruction to Noah about what he should bring on the ark, he says this, you shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. But unclean for What? Clean and unclean for what? We assume, I think because of just the air we breathe today, the teaching we've received, the bad teaching in the church, the misunderstanding about food and God's word, that this means something about, it's a statement about the relative healthiness of animals. Some things that are just not fit. God kind of takes back what he originally permitted. But no, they're not eating meat when God gives this instruction. So what is it about? There is a purpose, and the purpose is sacrifice. There's an animal that is appropriate for sacrifice, for worshiping God with, and animals that are not. This is very clear because once Noah gets off the boat, the, the, the water subsides, he steps off the boat. This is what it says in Genesis 8:20. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal, and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The unclean animals are not offered, only the clean ones. And so it's a ceremonial distinction, not a distinction of, of healthiness, nutritional value, but of fitness for worship. How did Noah know which ones are clean and unclean? We don't know. Scripture doesn't specify. Perhaps God gave Adam instructions about it when he... Um, killed the animals and clothed Adam and Eve in the skins of them, sort of demonstrating the way of sacrifice, the meaning and symbolism of sacrifice. Perhaps God gave Adam instruction that we don't have recorded and it was passed down to Noah. Seems to be assumed in 
to the writer of scripture that Noah knew what this meant. But we don't know. Okay, though, but that, that's in Genesis, clean and unclean. Surely, pastor, when we get to the, the Mosaic covenant, you have to admit that it, it's not just about sacrifice there, it's about diet. There are, there, there are foods not permitted to be eaten that are called unclean. So what do I make of that? And this, this is given, this long list um, is given in, in Leviticus 11 of clean animals and unclean animals. We'll read just a few verses of it. Verse one of Leviticus 11 says, the Lord spoke again to Moses and to Aaron saying to them, speak to the sons of Israel saying, these are the creatures which you may eat from all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hoofs and, and choose the cud among the animals that you may eat. Nevertheless, you are not to eat of these among those which chew the cud or among those which divide the hoof. The camel, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, it is unclean to you. Likewise, the chiffon, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, it is unclean to you. The rabbit also, for though it chews cud, it does not divide the hoof, it's unclean to you, etc. and so on, at length. Very specific, very clear distinctions about food. What is the purpose of that distinction? It's not for sacrifice. Now, I grew up hearing that the purpose was diet, that God knew what was best and he cared for the bodies of his people and he wanted them to be healthy. And he, so he provided for them a list of what was healthy. And even though we know that the law of Moses has been done away with, fulfilled in Jesus, and it's not binding on the Christian, it's still wise, it's still better. You're still sort of a lesser Christian if you don't abide by it. If you don't make your Ezekiel bread, if you don't, you know. If you boil your, your, your milk and your meat or whatever. That, I'm serious. That's, that's what most people think if they think about this. That it's a dietary distinction that God is making because he loves his people and he's teaching them positively about what's good for their diet. I, I just don't think that's right. And I think it's clear, beginning, it begins to be clear from Leviticus 11, if you bring that up, it doesn't actually say that it's unclean. It doesn't say that this and that, that animal is unclean. It says something a little bit different than that. It says it's unclean for you. And that's not the same thing. How is it not the same thing? Well, is this becomes very clear as we go to the New Testament. Jesus has come, he's died on the cross, he's been laid in the tomb, he's been resurrected, the Holy Spirit's been poured out, And then the apostle Peter has a vision. And this, he goes up on the rooftop of the house he's staying in to pray and he's hungry. And while they're preparing a meal downstairs, he falls into a trance. And what does he see in the trance? In the vision, he sees a sheet come down from heaven and it's holding all these animals that are unclean. And a voice says to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And he's horrified. No, Lord, I've never, I've never touched an unclean thing. I would never do that. 
It's contrary to your word. You know I, don't, I would never do that. I've never done it. And, and the voice says, Peter, don't call unclean what I have called clean. And then again, the voice says, kill and eat, kill and eat, kill and eat. And Peter wakes up from this trance and he's totally bewildered, puzzled about what's, what does this mean? What is God teaching him? As, at that moment, some men arrive, sent by an angel to fetch Peter to a Gentile home. And we don't have time to read it all, but listen to what Peter, he goes with them. God assures him by his spirit to go, that it's good for him to go. God intends it. Here's what he finds when he arrives at Cornelius's home in verse 24 of Acts chapter 10. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter raised him up saying, stand up. I too am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Now, the vision had animals in a sheet. And yet God showed him, he gets to Cornelius' house and he realizes the, the meaning of the vision has to do with men and distinctions God was establishing between men. What is, what's going on here? God, in the, in the Mosaic Covenant, establishes for himself a people, and his goal in doing that is that they would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people set apart for himself, separate from the world. And of course, at root, he desires a spiritual holiness for them and demands that and expects them of it expects it of them but he aids that he tags on to that all of these external separations it's kind of like you have to understand the old covenant ceremonies and the types and shadows like training wheels on a bicycle Paul calls the law a tutor that led us to Christ. You can think of it like a, a training bicycle that has its has its add-ons, its helps in a time of infancy, less knowledge or less ability. And that's what the ceremonies were like. The training wheels of the old covenant fall off in Jesus when he's come. They're They're not necessary anymore because Jesus is doing something new. The dietary laws were put in place to to show this distinction visibly and a very practical one. God wants to enforce a spiritual separation as much as he can encourage it, you know, among his people. Well, he makes their diet so restrictive they can't even eat with Gentiles. There's just nothing that they share in common. If they're going to obey God, they have to keep to this very strict rule And if they're going to live in covenant with him, this is part of the covenant. And it separates them from 
the Gentiles. Are you with me? Do you understand this? And so Peter sees the sheet come down with all the animals and he's like, I've never, I've never eaten anything. I don't know what God is trying to get me to see. What he's getting him to see is God is doing away with this separation between men. And, he's, and this, is, this is a further revelation like the day of Pentecost where there's tongues and different languages and men are hearing the gospel not in Hebrew. It's not just for the Jews, but it's for all people. God is further teaching Peter that, the, that Jesus Christ is for the nations. In verse 34, Peter goes on to say, Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation that, man who, that the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. This is what God was showing Peter with the, with the sheet and the animals. And it's a division between men that God had established with the, the dietary rules. He was not teaching about health. He was teaching about holiness, separateness. And that was only for a specific time and for a specific use, and it's done. So what, do, what then happens? Well, we revert back to the complete permissiveness of God's word. God's people revert back to the, the, per, the absolute, amazing, abundant permissiveness concerning food that he's established from the beginning. Now, this makes up most of the work of the New Testament. This is all through the writings of the, new, of the apostles. This is difficult to bring about. This is something radically new for the Jews. They've lived for generation after generation after generation with these customs and these traditions, and it is difficult to get them to loosen up about it, difficult to get them to love the Gentiles, to embrace the freedom of Jesus Christ. Peter himself the man who saw this vision and who came to understand its meaning had to be corrected by the Apostle Paul. You remember this? He was, was, it, he, was he in Antioch when this happened? He was in Antioch, I believe, and some Judaizers. Where was he from, David? Or where was he? He was in Galatia when this happened? Okay. Some Judaizers came into town. And they were the party of the Jews who were the, 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 the old holdouts. They were the ones that were least willing to get on board with what Jesus Christ was doing, had done, had accomplished. And so Paul sees Peter under pressure from these Judaizers separating himself from the Gentile believers and not eating with them. And Paul rebukes him publicly to his face. And most of the work of, of bringing this change of covenants about as it pertains to this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile fell to the Apostle Paul. It was very hard work for him and it's all through his letters. 
Here's what he writes in his letter to the Ephesians. It's very beautiful. And he's, just, he's describing what Jesus Christ has brought about. It says in verse 14 of Ephesians 2, he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the, the separateness, the conflict between these peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles. He, he, he broke down that barrier, the dividing wall. He abolished in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. That's what he wrote to the Ephesians. That was kind of like theory, explaining the doctrine, but then in other letters he has to engage in a fight and to just issue commands and say, you may not do this. Here's what he says to the the church in Rome. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. The one who does not eat, meaning like, let's say, a Judaizer who is very uncertain or unwilling to, to call clean what God, or to call, yeah, to call clean, to call, he continues to call unclean what God has called clean. Yeah, a Judaizer. Paul commands them that the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. And then to the church in Colossae, he writes, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink. And then he wrote to the church in Galatia describing how he had rebuked the apostle Peter over this very issue to his face. And it's like, he, he, he trots it out as like, this is the heart of the gospel. The gospel's at stake. You see how important this is. Food is not to divide us. That is a constant message of the New Testament. This controversy rages in Paul's letters. It's intensified by the increasing influence of Asian um, asceticism converts from Asia who have an ascetic background bringing their, their baggage into the church. What is asceticism? It's like the harsh treatment of the body, the um, separating yourself from worldliness as judged by them, uh, giving up all worldly comforts and luxuries, living a, uh, putting on, on uncomfortable underwear and that sort of thing, you know? That's, that's asceticism. And this was coming into the church. So he's fighting the Judaizers on the one hand and the, who are holding to the ceremonial law when it's been abrogated or done away with and he's having to fight over here in this direction with uh, ascetics who are advocating restraint, giving up foods, saying some foods are off limits. Particularly with them, it was meat. They tended to be vegetarians. And so Paul had his hands full. He's pedaling as fast as he can. And that brings us to 1 Timothy. Because back in the church at Ephesus, where he's left Timothy, the young pastor in charge, these, both these things are coming to bear in the church. And here's what Paul writes to Timothy. 
Listen to the intensity of Paul's words here. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. I think I've tried to provide us a really vivid understanding of the context of Paul's words. I think we're, we're feeling maybe some of the intensity of it as we read it, but let's make sure we're noticing exactly what he's saying and considering it. First of all, he says that the Spirit explicitly says, now Paul is always speaking with the authority of the Holy Spirit, but here he, he makes it clear, he, he brings it into view because this is an especially important thing that he's talking about here. The, Holy, the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, explicitly says this. What does he say? Well, that in later times, oh good. We don't have to worry about it today. Later times. It's like dressed right before the end. Well, that's, that's apostle speak for the period that he was in and the period that we're in. That is after Jesus Christ came, the latter days, the latter times. So he's, he's saying to Timothy, the Spirit has said this, that in these times, in the later times, this would happen. Some will fall away from the faith. So what's at stake? What are, the, what are the stakes here? As high as they can get, eternal souls hold, hang in the balance over this issue. Some will fall away from the faith how will they fall away? Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Whoa. They'll come under demonic influences. What do demons want? They want to turn everything God has made upside down. They want to destroy all that's good. They want to call all that's bad good. They want to get us to to turn away from the worship of God to the worship of anything else. And Paul says that many will fall away from the the faith listening to their teaching. They'll pay attention to the deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons which aim at their destruction and the corruption of all that God has made. How will they come under this influence? 
Paul says, by means of the hypocrisy of liars. Real men, real women, who are channeling the teachings of these demons, who are breathing it out, teaching it, expounding it, selling it, promoting it. Many will fall away from the faith, paying attention to the doctrines of demons that come to them by means of men, or of the hypocrisy of liars. Men who who aren't even as good as their bad principles. I, a, a good example of this is Al Gore. You know, Al Gore is, is the champion of climate change. Going around telling everybody to not use fossil fuels, to not, you know, to reduce their carbon footprint. And he does this on his huge jet airplane. Burning up way more fossil fuels in one flight than you'll ever use in your life. This is the hypocrisy of a liar. Not as good as his own commitments. These demonic doctrines come by ways of men. And what are the men like? What are these lying hypocrites like? Well, Paul says that they're seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. So God has given us each a conscience. And it's an internal witness telling us what's right and what's wrong. And it's quite possible to destroy it. You just ignore it long enough. You suppress it. You say, I'm not listening to you. And Paul says that that's like taking a branding iron, a hot iron, like to your flesh. And what happens if you do that? Well, you kill the nerves and you don't have the sensitivity that you once have. You can put your hand on it. I don't even feel that there. I feel it in my fingers, but not on my arm where the burn is. And that's what you can do to your conscience. And that's what Paul says these men who are are promoting the doctrines of demons have done to themselves. They don't even know any longer that they're lying. They're very sincere. They don't even see themselves or have any ability to judge themselves. What will these self-deceived men say? Well, here's what Paul says their doctrine is. They forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. These are the doctrines of demons that Paul is specifically calling out. Is anybody today forbidding marriage? The Catholic Church. That's exactly what John Calvin says in his commentary. That the really spiritual people don't get married. And all those people who aren't as spiritual or as holy do. That's a classic example in history of how men have forbidden marriage. And this was going on at this time. The ascetics came into the church and they were forbidding marriage. They're saying the really spiritual way, the way to truly pursue God and please him, is to renounce marriage and to be celibate. Is anybody today, though, like in our life, forbidding marriage? Finish your degree first. Absolutely. Anybody putting down marriage? Anybody saying it should be delayed? Anybody saying it shouldn't be taken seriously? Anybody saying it shouldn't even be 
it shouldn't even be. All around us. How about food? Anybody saying we shouldn't eat certain foods? In Paul's context, as I said, most of the commentators agree that what, what was at stake here was the question of whether you could eat meat. Possibly also whether you could drink alcohol. But man, we've got that and we've got you can't eat some, unless it fell naturally from the tree, unless it was, I don't even know what paleo is, unless it was, I mean, endless we have perfected the art of excluding foods. This is how food is marketed today. One product says, this is the innocent product. This is the healthy product. And all the other products are not innocent. They're guilty. <laughs> and you incur guilt if you partake of them. But on the other hand, this one is guilt-free. It's just like right at the core of our, how we th approach food, how, and you know how we approach food because that's people study us and they market to us. We think about food. Uh, Andrew gave me this wonderful article and it, it's from Slate Magazine and it talks about how we don't talk about sin anymore. We talk about poison, toxins, that we, 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 we evaluate food on the basis of toxins, which are really hard to pin down. It's just like a buzzword everybody's attuned to, and oh, toxins, bad. <laughs> we don't even know what they are. Uh, often they're just like in your food all the time, in very, uh, you can't live without them in some doses, but you can't live with them in this, at a certain point, you know? That's what a toxin is. You, basically a good thing to begin with. I don't know where I am. <laughs> Men, women, everywhere are advocating abstaining from foods. All the time, all the time. In our homes, there are men and women advocating abstaining from foods. In this church, there are men and women advocating abstaining from foods. In our small group meetings, it's just constant. This has become a part of normal conversation, normal society. We don't even, we just take it for granted, rolls right over us. And what does the Apostle Paul say? Doctrines of demons. Whoa. Very intense. Doctrines of demons. Men falling away from the faith because of it. Are we susceptible to any of these voices, brothers and sisters? Are we impervious to them? We're very susceptible. We're, we're easy pickings. Why, though? Think about it. Why? What's your interest in health? What's at the core of it? What's it about? Living as long 
as healthily as you can or as happily, unencumbered or, you know, unhindered. Yeah. Eternal life is what somebody said in the first service right away. And I think that's exactly right. We see food on the one hand as the thing that will prevent us from living forever and the thing that will help us to live forever. There's billions of dollars going into research about how to make men live forever. And it always comes to bear on diet. What should a man eat in order to live as long and as happily as possible? So we want to live forever, we're f- but we're afraid of death. I think that's a better way of putting it. We're afraid of death. And so we've got to, f- we've got to answer that fear somehow. And food presents itself and marketers present itself to us in our fear and say, here, this will help you with that problem of yours. I guarantee it. It'll help you. That's how, that's how food is presented to us today. We don't want to die. And so... We look to food for the answers. What else? I don't think I understand that as well as I should, but I think I've sensed it intuitively all the time. You know, you've noticed the price tag on the organic produce versus the (laughs) non-organic produce. (laughs) It's always higher. And man, it's, it's, so it's, it's a rich person's luxury to be concerned about these kinds of things, isn't it? We're vain. We're vain. But we're really behind that. We're, we're afraid of not being appreciated or loved or noticed We're afraid of our spouse getting tired of us, of our bodies. And so we turn to diet, to health, to food, supplements, to answer that fear. What about, it's kind of related to wealth, but we want to feel superior to others. This is the basic motivation of man. We want to feel superior to others. Food's a perfect way to do that today. You can show how concerned you are about diet and other people's diet. You can show how in well-read you are about on diet information. It's, 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 I'm not going to recommend it to you, but it's a very good way to get a leg up on somebody. It's a good way to get attention. You can say, oh, I have this or that problem. I'm gluten-free. I'm this or that. And you can get a lot of sympathy and attention from people. So you crave attention. You're afraid of being, of going unnoticed, unloved. Just trot out your boutique diet, your your boutique allergy and attention solved. Except not, right? Because all of these things, well, okay, we should mention one more. This is something that's very, I hear often from women, a desire for control, to feel like you're in control of something in your life. You can, get a, you can start a food journal and you can register what you ate and when and how it made you feel. And you can feel like you've got control of your otherwise out of control life. 
All of these are what? What are these things? They're idols, false gods. We have these fears, and where do we look for the solution? If we look to it in any place other than God and his word, then we have an idol in our life, and we've made an idol out of food. And let's remember what the, what's at stake with these idols. Paul says some have fallen away from, or some will fall away from the faith because of their idolatry. They will lose their soul and burn in hell because they did not look to God, but look to the flesh, look to the world, look to things that are of this world to answer their, their, their fears, their dilemmas, their desires for life. Now, are you, are you, husband, wife, child, are you entangled in idolatry? Are you entangled in idolatry of food? Paul provides the answer, the antidote in this passage. Very powerful antidote. And that is seen in verses three and four. So he's been talking about those men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created. And here's why God has created them. To be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. Gratitude is the antidote to fear, to idolatry. You cannot be an idolater and grateful to God at the same time. It's just not possible. You can't be giving thanks to God, showing your, thinking about, meditating upon your dependence upon him, and looking to the things of this world to meet your needs. It can't be done. Gratitude is the antidote to the sin of idolatry when it comes to food. Lies about food Fear-mongering about food capitalizes or trades on ingratitude. Here's a couple of examples of that. Um, I was asked by my dear wife to watch a documentary about vaccination. Very compelling persuasive presentation about the evils of vaccination. Hard to refute. And I sat there intuitively thinking, I don't, I do not receive this. But why do I not receive this? What am I going to say about it? And then I realized that vaccination had removed diseases from the world. And there was no talk about that in the documentary. Not a mention of it. No appreciation for that. And so I, I realized suddenly I had a principle. I knew how, I had a grid for processing all the noise about all kinds of things. Is there any gratitude? Are there problems with vaccinations? Adam Spady, our resident physician, yet nodding his head, yes. Are there problems with big pharma, Adam? Yes. 
Yes. <laughs> Boring. Are there problems with, with the food industry? Are there successes in all of these places? Huge ones. So Aaron Jones drug me to a lecture one time on campus. I didn't know anything about economics, but this sounded interesting. It was Tom Woods, I think was his name. He was just a, like a free market guy. He was giving a really simple layman's talk about the economy, what it is. Very informative, and he, he led us through, he's first described on the American frontier that each, each uh, homestead was its own economy, and all of the members of the household worked together to put food on the table, dawn till dusk every day, constant work, very hard, and how through the development of our history, there's been an increasing specialization and sharing of labor and working together, cooperating, and our economy has just grown and grown and grown, and now just to make one um, candy bar, there's like 35 people or different processes involved cooperating together to get that on the shelf, and he said, I take my girls to the, the store and I just drive them crazy because I say, girls, stop, look at it all. This is amazing. Now you can have, you can, I guess you can have three responses going in a grocery store. You can either be just like totally thoughtless about it, or you can be totally afraid of it because there's, it's full of toxin and poison and you don't want to be guilty, mom, of, of feeding that to your family. You can be stressed out about it. Or you can be grateful, warts and all, for what God has provided for us today in the grocery store. Whoa! Just, he, he talked about ham. He's like, girls, look at this ham. Just the right amount, right there for us. Not too mature, not going to go bad, you know, within a week. It's just what we need right there. That's thinking like a Christian about food. Do we think like Christians about food? Is there gratitude, a basic posture, a viewpoint of gratitude as we think about what we put in our bodies and the people who work hard to provide it and to make it possible? I don't think there is. One of my favorite memes. <laughs> Absolute all-time favorite is this. One hundred, it has a picture of a woman, like an etching of a woman giving birth to a child on a chair in agony. And it says, superimposed on top of it, 100 to 200 years ago, people ate organic, unprocessed foods and didn't have vaccines and lived to the ripe old age of died in childbirth. <laughs> There's problems with the food industry. There's problems with modern medicine. There's problems and always will be until kingdom come. But God has been blessing us progressively we should not take it for granted. So gratitude, the gratitude test. I think that's probably the most important thing to take home today 
That's just a helpful way to sort through all the noise. Do I see any gratitude here? If not, I don't need it. <laughs> I don't take it seriously. I do not receive it. There's no gratitude. Don't process your faith and your morality through your food. Paul goes on in this passage to say to Timothy that on the other hand, he should discipline himself for the purpose of godliness in verse seven. And then look at the next words, amazing. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness and you think, yeah, that's what I'm doing. That's why I'm eating right. And he says, for bodily discipline is of a little profit, but godliness. And so he makes this separation between what you want to make your morality and what God considers your morality. Discipline yourself. Yeah, discipline's good. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And yeah, bodily discipline is of some profit, but temporal, not great profit, whereas godliness has, has profit for now and forever. And so, men and women, moms, when you have your children, you, have so, you only have so much time in the day, right? For yourself, for your children, for your husband, only so much time that you can give. And just the work of getting food on the table, doing the laundry, all that stuff is so demanding, you do not need to add to it fear about food, pouring over the labels, because what will happen? It will crowd out any hope of discipline for godliness. And that's of infinite profit for now and forever. So give your attention to your children. Love them. Discipline them. Teach them about God's word. Open up God's word. How much time do you give that in your home? Think of how valuable it is. Are we giving God's word time? Are we devoting ourselves to him? Food and drink will not or food will not commend us to God, Paul says in Corinthians. And in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is the kingdom of God, the stuff of the kingdom. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We're to discipline ourselves for that purpose. We're to seek after those things. And finally... You're going to die. <laughs> You're going to die. <laughs> it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Are you prepared for that? God in his word says, your focus on food is no help for you. It's no hope for you. Don't lose yourself there. Don't let that obscure what's, what's most important and most true. You're going to die and you're going to face God. In Psalm 139, it says, Your eyes, Lord, have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. 
So not only you're going to die, you're going to die whenever God says you're going to die. <laughs> do, you even, do you believe God's word? Yes, we've got to take consideration for our bodies. Yes, we should take consideration for our health. But it is not the goal to live as long as possible. That's not our basic goal. It's not, it's not even hardly important in the scheme of things. Our goal as Christians is to live for God to devote ourselves to him, to look to him, and prepare ourselves to meet him. I'll close with these words of Jesus Christ. He says in John chapter 6, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures. That's the spiritual food of God's word in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's look unto him, okay?